Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. And I have a very special guest uh, this week, Dr. Stuart Shulman. Um, uh, Dr. Shulman, you were introduced to me by one of my fielding professors while I was doing my doctorate, and I was asking, is there any way to do deep data analysis? And uh, uh, my professor introduced me to you, which I am grateful to her for. And I want to just share a little bit about your bio. You are the founding editor of the Journal of Information Technology and Politics. You hold a PhD in American politics and is currently the founder and CEO of TechSifter, a soft b software business serving academic, commercial, and government clients. And DiscoverText is a web-based text analytics platform for improving human and machine learning. And you are a scholar, you've done extensive teaching, leadership roles with all kinds of uh, externally funded teams for collaborative interdisciplinary research. And your projects include qualitative, quantitative survey, social media data, as well as human annotation at scale, information retrieval, and machine learning methods. But today, and I should say that years ago when we first met, you, the, your, your uh, company was analyzing data on what was Twitter, now X, and you were following all kinds of interesting stories that helped us to try to unpack the, the machinery of radicalization, and I'll just leave it at that. I want to thank you for being on the Influence Continuum and your continued good work to try to illuminate what the heck's going on on, on social media. Thank, thank you, Stephen, and thank you to our mutual friend who introduced us. I think that was a great introduction, and I also appreciate that you came to see my son play soccer. Yes, it was fun to see him play soccer and get to know you personally. So thanks for this opportunity. Of course, I read your book about Trump and followed this, and I think despite all those things you listed off, I would describe my work primarily as storyteller uh data storyteller i'm a qualitative researcher i really think of myself as a historian mm -hmm. and i love books about history and institutions and people who abuse power and gain power and use various methods and fight over contested ideals and it seems like we're in a moment right now that people will be thinking about and writing about for many years to come mm -hmm. and i think about what i do as a kind of contemporary historian work first draft of history, not really a journalist, yeah. but an observer. And so it's been interesting to me to watch the use of the social media platforms in particular. You mentioned Twitter. We were customers of a, of a company that Twitter bought. Mm -hmm. So uh, the technology that we developed wasn't really for Twitter. Mm -hmm. It was for federal agencies sorting public input comments about proposed regulations, mm -hmm. which seems very mundane when you compare that to information warfare and psychological operations and people who tell stories on Twitter that might not necessarily be true and tell them in ways that are compelling, even addictive, mm -hmm. and that invite participation by others. I think probably one of the big 
surprises in all of this was A, that I couldn't look away, and B, that the stories were so interesting and compelling that even though I disagreed with them and found them offensive and dangerous, subversive, upsetting, you can't really look away. They're, they draw you in in a way that I can't even understand or plan to kind of look at your work a little bit to understand why I find this work so compelling. I've been doing it for four years now. Yep. Well, I got, we got a name QAnon, buddy. Like that's the thing that I was most interested in first talking with you about. And it's like, this is like a version of the protocols of the elders of Zion, Russian propaganda nonsense about, you know, eating children for adrenochrome and other such stories. But there's so many other storylines which seem to be oriented to getting emotions really aroused and then using right. algorithms to recruit a whole lot of what could be bots or troll farms or other agents. All, all the above, yeah. all the above. And, and you're right. And it's not those stories that draw me in, mm-hmm. but I'll tell you the one story that drew me in Please. is the, stor- the story of the 2019 Canadian election. So I have a PhD in American politics hanging on the wall behind me. But I grew up in Canada, and I have a Canadian mom and an American father. Uh, so I guess I was kind of an anchor baby in Canada okay. growing up. Uh-huh. Uh, and I've always been fascinated with how Canadians think about Americans and Americans think about Canadians. Because in large part, as I was growing up, I was actually treated hmm. as an American by my Canadian friends, as a landed immigrant. Hmm. So I had this funny framework in my head about U.S. Canadian, and then I moved back and lived most of my adult life mm-hmm. in the United States. Went to university here, and I, one thing I learned about uh, Americans is they don't really care about Canada. <laughs> it's not. It's not a kind of. I mean, maybe the hockey fans and people are interested in trade wars about timber, and that's about it. Mm. Canadian politics doesn't show up in American newspapers on the evening news. It's not discussed about in political science classes mm-hmm. in the United States, really. And so I was really shocked in 2019 when I started seeing all this discussion by people who, let's say, identified as American Mm -hmm. and may or may not have been. And they were talking about Canadian politics, in particular Justin Trudeau. Mm. And there was a viral hashtag called Trudeau Must Go. I think it's probably still kicking around on Twitter at this point. We started collecting all that data, all the mentions of Trudeau and his rivals for election, as well as the far right uh, uh, rival. And then looking at some of the accounts that were posting about the Canadian election, mm. but claiming to be American. And that's where I found QAnon. I didn't, I wasn't looking for them. This sort of gets at the underlying methodology. I wasn't really looking mm. for them. I didn't know anything about them. Uh-huh. I had never heard of them. But I looked both at the content of the tweets as well as the user descriptions. Mm. So the picture, the bio is perhaps the most interesting piece of Twitter for me. And there were these buzzwords like where we go one we go all QAnon, other uh follow the white rabbit other things that were peculiar and once you had seen one the software makes it easy to go out and see more Mm. or all of them and so you can immerse yourself in like a stream of data and i'm sitting here looking at all these people who are purporting to be americans and they care passionately about canadian politics Mm. so my first hunch was there's something fishy and we started doing a deeper dive and looking at the data, and we found, sure enough, there were Canadians who also shared Russian propaganda accounts, like South Front Today or 
uh, sorry, Veterans Today or South Front, which are fronts for Russian propaganda in English. And they were, so they're sharing on the, they're MAGA, they're Trump, they're QAnon, but they're also occasionally sharing Russian propaganda. And I assume they, of course, were Russians. A few years down the road, I've started to see the whole thing a little bit differently, a little more layered, mm -hmm. maybe a few Russians, mm -hmm. maybe some important Russians, but also um, people who admire Russia, mm -hmm. who are scattered around the world, who might be in the Netherlands or in Germany or in the United States or Canada or anywhere, but they actually have a transnational affinity group. Mm -hmm. And they're genuinely, authentically pro-Russian. There are things they like about Russian culture, Russian politics, Putin, Putinism, white nationalism, other things that unite them. Mm -hmm. And so to assume that they were a troll army or a bot army that had swooped in on Canadian politics was too reductive. Interesting. And what I learned over time is, yes, maybe they plant seeds, maybe they start storylines, maybe they accelerate storylines, maybe they're amplifiers, but they're also authentic people in the U.S. as well who are suddenly interested in the trucker convoy in Canada or whatever the right. outbreak of Canadian nationalism, right. Canadian anti-LGBTQ, anti-immigration, things that line up. So they're actually, you know, we all know MAGA, but I discovered MCGA, Canada grading it. You would see a lot of people on Twitter who were both. Interesting. They were make Canada great again, make and they were and they had Japanese accounts, and you start to see that this is actually a global movement of people who share this affinity where the locus is Trump. Right. So let me just for my listeners who maybe have read the cult of Trump, you know, I I'm a therapist, you know, I'm a my frame is healing and helping people who are radicalized. And I got invited to a 2015 meeting on countering ISIS recruitment online, which is really where I started learning about online radicalization and, and started rolling up my sleeves about that. But in my research for my, my 2019 Cult of Trump book, I learned about William Lind and fourth-generation warfare. He was an American military strategist who paired up with Paul Weirich of the Christian right. And this was about, you know, more than just propaganda. This was like to make people distrust experts, uh, science, uh, institutions like democracy, and to just um, um, polarize and, 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 and to make people so uncomfortable and uncertain that they'd be more vulnerable to some certainty that would tell them how to explain what was going on in the world. So for me, there was a whole bunch of bad actors that I named in chapter seven of the cult of Trump, but uh, I, I put Putin at the top of chapter seven, frankly, and then I put the family and Opus Dei and the NRA and a bunch of other QAnon was little in, back then for me, but it's still around, apparently. So forgive me for the the insertion, no. but just historically. No, it makes perfect sense, yeah. and it makes perfect sense, and, and it illuminates things that I see that I, I, I still struggle to make sense of. Mm. But you see it in the data, and you, 
you have to ask yourself. So there is this very evangelical uh, streak uh, in the bios where they're linking uh, sort of deification from with their mission to serve Christ as a part of a right. as a part of a religious revival, and uh, this this threatening um, sense that they feel. Yeah, if NAR, New Apostolic Reformation, the Christian Nationalists, exactly. you know, uh, wrote about Capital Ministries who did Bible studies with the Trump cabinet, you know, uh, every week. And um, and this whole notion that America's history was really, it was a Christian nation, so we have to get rid of democracy and the separation of church and state and impose our, you know, old views of, you know, men are supreme, women should be dependent, let's get rid of women's health care prerogatives over their body, let's, you know, let's get rid of gay rights, you know, let's let's allow discrimination against minorities because we have the truth with a capital T, which is so un-American. I think that all of that is present and it's all, it's, it all confusing in a way. Mm when you try and make sense of it. And I, I do think people do it for different reasons. It's again, a place where there's no sort of all-encompassing explanation because you see people whose politics are perfectly aligned, but maybe their position on Middle Eastern conflict is because they are separated at some level um, by who they think is at fault in the Mideast and what they think the proper outcome in the Mideast and so on. It, but they're united around Trump. Yeah, they're united around this idea that he's the one, no matter what, who can carry us forward. That, that's been part of what's been interesting about working with so much of this data. We label a lot of the bios as to whether or not they're simply promoting Trump or not. We're building a machine learning model where we can look at hundreds of thousands and then pull out subsets and see what are the common themes running through these subsets of Twitter bots. Yeah, if I can just share... All, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, Steve. Absolutely. I was going to say, there's almost always a surprise in there. Yeah. there's. It's never predictable. It's always, I think, a, a movement that's taken on some dynamics of its own, that even the leadership has no control. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, uh, this is a conversation... I just want to say that, um, you know, for me, I learned recently when I read a book called The Parrot and the Igloo by David Lipsky about 50 years of climate science denial that my former cult, the Moonies, were the front for the Washington Times Foundation that were platforming these deniers. And to me, the big money you know, actors, the countries, Russia depends on oil, uh, the Middle East depends on oil, the Coke industry, the second largest corporate um, uh, entity in the United States, all pushing fossil fuels. And that, it seems to me to link to this notion of we can't trust science, you know, 97% of climate scientists say that human Fossil fuels is causing the, the horrible predicament we have with warming, but they just mm. keep pushing and using different players to distract, to buy off co congressmen, senators, and lobby, set up front groups. But to me, a lot of it's about power and money and greed. Well, 
And I think you really hit the issue on the head with the idea of just causing doubt. Yeah. You know, trusted authorities, institutions, in science itself. The other hugely unexpected thing was the extreme prevalence of anti-vax material on Twitter within the within the subset I'm focusing on. So for example, for the last week, I've been digging through an old data set I think, from early December 2017. Mm-hmm. It was right after General Flynn had pled guilty. And uh, there was a lot of speculation on Twitter about how great this was, actually, for QAnon. And QAnon was only five weeks old, and I wasn't really studying QAnon at the time. I just collected it to see what people were saying about Flynn's couple of million tweets. And what I've been doing lately is documenting how many of those accounts are still on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so far, it's about almost a quarter of them mm-hmm. that were promoting with extreme certainty the the dogma of QAnon about five weeks into a movement most people would not hear about until 2020. Right. right? This was 2017. And they knew for sure all the code words and the buzzwords, and they were all speculating about Flynn. So I'm looking both at that 2017 data, but for the ones that are still online, what are they up to right now? Yeah, tell us. What's the most... Anti-vax, mm-hmm. 100%. Almost all of them. Mm-hmm. They, whether it's Trump's supporters, they're anti-vax, they're hardcore Flynn people, they are insurrectionists, mm-hmm. they're racist, they're connected to white supremacists. I mean, it's a horror show if you're a, a person who doesn't believe in autocracy right. or white nationalism or Christian nationalism the group of surviving founding members of QAnon on Twitter mm-hmm. are uniformly undermining climate science, vaccine science, promoting all sorts of uh, urban legends about massive numbers of deaths and casualties, deformities, and all these medical incidents caused by vaccines. I've been also seeing a lot of UFO stuff that's put being They're in pushed. There. So there's, the ascended there's a, a masters and the, the 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 extraterrestrial beings stuff. That there's are... a spectrum. I mean, if you if you start seeing pyramids, <laughs> yeah, you know you're at a certain point on the spectrum. Yeah, and uh, but then not everybody's doing pyramids. For some of them, it's sort of like the conversion of the you know the the modern megachurch from worship, worshiping Jesus to worshiping money and power. Right. It's like they're not really into the minutia of the conspiracy. They just want to be a part of this big truck right? rolling down and wear their, their mega hat right. and toot their horn that they're a part of this amazing moment in history where they are ushering in something that I think right. most people would have a hard time understanding. Or accepting, for sure. Or accepting. So for I sure. want to circle back to before January 6th for months. I remember you were recording some Vimeo short things and yes. posting it and saying, there's a lot of talk about violence. There's a lot of talk about insurrectionism. You know, so be I'll careful, people. Yeah, tell us about yeah. what you were finding, please. So our mutual friend, after seeing the work that I had done in 2019 on the Canadian election, made this introduction 
that led to me doing a, a presentation to the Strategic Multilayer Assessment mm -hmm. on February 12, 2020, which is uh, the Intel community of the U.S. and the U.K. Mm -hmm. This is not a place most historians find themselves. Right. I had never really had an audience like this for my work before. It was fairly intimidating, and I'm fairly comfortable in front of a big audience. Um, 62 people uh, for an hour taking this briefing, and essentially what I was sharing was another set of unexpected findings, which as soon as the Canadian election finished, I now had started documenting QAnon and this kind of strange role for the Russians in the Canadian election and you know linking them to Americans. On December 22nd, 2019, I started collecting mentions of Biden. And there hadn't been a primary yet, and there hadn't been any votes cast. Um, and it wasn't certain Biden was going to be the candidate by any means. Mm -hmm. you know, doing quite poorly at the beginning. But there were millions of tweets. Amazing numbers of tweets before any votes had been cast. And so many of them were negative. And when I, in our software, we're able to see the most viral tweets organized sort of in a rank order list in their counts. And in one of those lists, I think maybe 15 of the 20 most viral tweets were from a guy named Charlie Kirk. Mm. And I don't know how familiar you are with Charlie Kirk, but he's one of the Turning Point USA, you know, leaders, or he's, he's one of the attack dogs. Yeah, propagandist is what comes to mind for me. He's, he's an extremist. Yep. Anyway, so to see Charlie Kirk having the most viral tweets by far of anybody on the planet, mm. and them all being about Biden, I thought that was suspicious. We started thinking in the same way we had the Canadian data. Sure enough, the same digital fingerprints, footprints, mm. markings of QAnon, where we go, one way go, wrong. conspiracy theory, you know, Bots, trolls. So February 12th, I give this briefing um, to all the intelligence branches of the military, of the U.S. and the U.K., and um, nothing happened. You know, there's no, there's no follow-up. It's sort of, of course, they all report up to civil servants, and they're civil servants, but they report up to political appointees. They're all reporting to Trump appointees. Well, there's no place for that to go other than into the archives right. of presentations of open source information that the Intel community gets from academics and other people who happen to stumble into these strange phenomena, unexplainable phenomena going on in the data. So as the summer went on, I started getting a little desperate. Uh, work with Jim Stewart. Mm hmm producing a video with one of his friends about even how Twitter worked after they started suspending the QAnons in the middle of the summer, how it was sort of architected as a game. And this is something Jim taught me that was very valuable about how people use Twitter to gamify crowdsourcing. Yeah, if I may interrupt for a second and just say that I, I learned about alternate reality gaming from Jim and Dave Troy did a TEDx Mid-Atlantic with myself and Jim Stewartson um, and um, Desiree um, on, on the, applying this notion of, you know, breadcrumbs and let's try to figure out what, you know, Q is meaning by the X, you know, whatever. So, 
encouraging people to be be storytellers, to tell stories, to add to the yes. intrigue and the intense and suspense. I mean, it's kind of a genius strategy, but nobody was able to in the, in the political circles or the administrative agencies. There are certain things that also limit what the government can do with this information. Right. I tell DHS this information, as I've done more recently. Yeah. Um, there's very little they can do with it mm-hmm. because they're not empowered under law to um, track down people who are spreading conspiracy theories to overthrow the government. That's not their mandate. And despite what they might say about that, that's not what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why when I happened to meet a very senior DHS official up in Ottawa conference I was attending, I asked him, I said, did you be aware of this briefing? Were you did you do people know that all of these people called themselves digital soldiers? Right. That they were for years talking about, you know, 1776 and there's going to come a moment and is it right. built up closer to uh, to January 6th? Like, were you, they sent it directly. We saw all the same things you saw. We're aware of it. Mm-hmm. We're all watching the same program. Mm-hmm. Not what, what, the big aha for me was this only works if it's done in the open. Mm. It can't work. It can't scale to the size they needed to overrun the Capitol if you don't do it all out in the open. So by the time, you know, November, December came around, I had sort of given up. Mm-hmm. I had felt like we put all the red flags up that we could. We tried even little interventions to redirect the course of history, create awareness, produce videos. I ended up thinking the only ones who were watching them were the QAnons, and they were probably getting some good ideas mm. about the next thing they were doing. So that's why I've taken them down and hidden them, because it's basically a roadmap for how to overthrow the government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I should. I also want to just toot my own horn for a second and said I, I submitted the, the manuscript for the Cult of Trump in May of 2019. And I said, if Trump wasn't reelected, expect violence. And I quoted Jim Jones just from my hmm. research for 47 years about cults. I think that's where our work really comes together because just like um, I learned something about alternate reality games, from your book and from your work, when I started to see the inexplicable behavior, right, where the the belief systems don't line up, purported belief, oh, you know, like, for, we know what's really hot right now amongst these people is they don't like the Constitution. They like the Declaration of Independence. Hmm. Okay? Now, they probably have flags all over their bio. They think themselves as super patriots, and they love America. But I guarantee you, between now and the next insurrection, you're going to hear a lot of expanding trash talk that the Declaration was the the document we should worship, and the Constitution is the one that we can get rid of. And the context is, you know, that uh, the Constitution says insurrectionists can't be reelected, right? So they have to try to trash the the constitution and even also, though every branches of government right <laughs> different branches separation of powers and political scientists right the things they're talking about overthrowing right are the building blocks of political science 101 american politics. right what we teach every incoming student is that we break up power on purpose 
Yeah. It was a conscious choice to make it. Yeah, and Trump is is saying he's going to be a dictator and make he has his list of enemies and he's going to weaponize the Justice Department and come after us. I uh, I assume I'm in the list, probably not at the top, but in the list. And so like take him at his word. Do you care about human rights? Do you care about women's rights, gay rights, indigenous rights, children's rights? Minority religions rights and minority religions also include anyone who isn't a Christian dominionist, nationalist, mm-hmm. pro-Russia. You know. <laughs> so here's where I, I feel I have to jump in and say that when it seems overwhelming that my old professor Howard Zinn, who wrote a people's history of the United States, mm. was probably one of the biggest, most important reasons I became interested in studying history was having a personal relationship with him as an undergraduate, hmm. you know, he would point out that these moments that test us, where it seems like we're all getting run down by overwhelming force, mm-hmm. and powers that are conspiring in ways to use violence, um, the people rise up and do things. You know, they stand up for what they believe in, and we've seen it even at the ballot box recently. Yeah in a series of elections that uh, nobody on Fox News could have predicted yep. the outcome yep. or but people who read Howard Zinn's book understood what happened. Yeah, and I, I'll just do a shout-out for Rachel Maddow's new book, Prequel, that talked about the Nazis' infiltration into politics using Coughlin, who had a very popular radio show. I mentioned him in The Cult of Trump. Um, and uh, how they wanted to do a, a physical coup in 1940 to keep the U.S. out of uh, Germany's uh, quest to take over the world. And she rightly says, it, citizens rose up, and, and you know, this, this Charles Gallagher is a Jesuit historian who wrote uh, Nazis in Copley Square, The Forgotten History of the Christian Front, someone I interviewed, you know, said, I saw this picture and they had military assault rifles and I was wondering how what they were doing with Christian Front was doing with military assault rifles. And he wound up just doing a deep dive, even though there was no commercial benefit in terms of his research. He was just following the story. And he realized that, that Germany had put a spy here in the 30s, and this guy had actually done a doctoral dissertation at the University of Munich in 1932 on mind control and how to manipulate people emotionally. And that was the playbook. We, this is a, I think we, we can see that the playbook that is effective commercially, that is effective especially on mobile phones, that is the source of concern, for any parent who has a kid on a mobile, uh, or any person who wakes up and checks their phone in the middle of the night and finds themselves going down a rabbit hole, is that that um, science is way ahead of the science, for example, that the Democratic Party uses to get voters. Yep. Yep. And uh, there's not even a day and night compared to people who want to make you angry, sad. Yep. Or any whatever are way ahead of the people who just want to turn you out. Yep. And for my listeners, I want to just recount 
The Mercers used Cambridge Analytica to hack Facebook to get personality data. There's no data privacy protections uh, in America. They're trying to do stuff in Europe. Um, and that these algorithms have been developed uh, based on people's likes and dislikes and what they share and what they don't share. And so it just, with AI, it just keeps getting more sophisticated. And people don't understand that we're being dopamine addicted to these platforms for attention is what uh, the public is being told. But it's not just for attention for advertisers, it's to radicalize people to overthrow uh, American de democratic values and ideals. I have to agree and, and say that the biggest threat in 2024 besides Trump and Trumpism and an anti-democratic, small d, uh, Republican party is this blind faith that people have shown to AI. It's fundamentally not a mature technology that is producing all sorts of false positives and false negatives in people's uh, worldviews mm -hmm. and essays. <laughs> I just, every day there's going to be another story about somebody making a bad decision mm -hmm. because they used an AI that was brought to market and brought to the public way before it was ready, way before anybody is capable of regulating it. I mean, the work I do in machine learning, information retrieval, it always involves humans making choices, mm. exercising judgments. We never just turn the machine on and say go. Mm -hmm. you know, that's what people who use software want. I know as a founder of a software company and someone who's done meetings like this yep. for 13 years now with people that when they come to me, what they really want is a magic button. Yeah. And I end up saying, you know, we don't build magic button, we build tools to make humans able to do things at a larger scale than they could do with it. Mm -hmm. But the human needs to be in the loop. And what I see going into 2024 is an increasing number of people who think the human does not need to be in the loop. Mm. And they're not even really aware of what the role would be for the human if it was. And it's to make sure that the machine is not making a mistake. Yeah. That the AI or the, you know, that, that there's not a missing parameter around ethics or values or judgment or decency or honesty or integrity or anything. It's just a magic button and it means you can push it and it's going to produce some sort of result. I would say the biggest threat to, to American politics in the technological realm is the uncritical assumption that there is a magic button mm -hmm. and that, you know, I kind of feel like uh, people have lost their way from the role of the human mind yeah. in exercising judgment, not alone, but in groups with other people based on decisions that are, you know, thought through and deliberative. When I was an undergrad, a graduate student, one of my professors was John Dreisick. He's a deliberative democratic theorist. Mm -hmm. He's done a lot of research on how deliberative democracy works and what it means to reach consensus and compromise and, you know, he's a theorist. Mm -hmm. he, he does empirical work as well, and he's aspirational. Right. He's Habermasian in a way. And um, that is just so not what the internet is. Right. There's just none of that. 
right? So to to just go back to my doctoral work, which is how I met you initially, I wanted to create, uh, see whether or not there was a quantitative, scientifically valid aspect to my bite model, um, controlling behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions, which I wrote about in the 85, coming out of the Moonies going, this is how they hacked me, and this is how they controlled me through these variables. And um, But the influence continuum, which is the framework of ethical, values-based, conscience-based, the critical thinking and free will and choices-based, is the, is the healthy side. And what I hear you saying is we need to understand our values of what and I come back to simple things like don't do to others what you don't want done to you. Like if you don't want somebody to harm your mother or your, your, your wife or your kid, think first before you do something that may be malevolent to other people's kids. I think that at this point, we're, we've sort of moved so far beyond getting people to treat each other with respect that we're legitimately in a realm where we have to talk about whether or not public officials are making decisions based on threats of violence against them. And, and that is very different than a deliberative right. democratic space. That, that's a space where people are just trying to survive. Yep. And, you know, it takes a real um, outlier, a Romney or Kinzinger or Cheney, Liz Cheney, to go up against that. And for the wider population, I think what what I fear is people are being given license mm -hmm. to give up on trying and to think about this as just a bare brass knuckle fight. Yeah. A fight, a literal physical fight for power. And it has been all through history. Every time political solutions, nonviolent solutions break down and in government, mm -hmm. it devolves to violence, mm. and somebody seizes power. Mm. And so, I see the big challenge going forward to be to modernize the the reasonable people, so that they're both able to use some of the techniques that the people we might disagree with are using, and understand why they're effective, but to put them in a different framework. Yeah, but to simply adopt some of those same techniques because. They've really figured out how to get people to carry the water for fascism for free. Yeah. They're not even paying them. Yep. Right. And we just need to get people to carry the water for democracy for free. And it's work. And so I'm an election worker. You know, I go every November and work the polls. That's one way of doing work. Mm -hmm. We need most of the people I work with are older than me, the ballot inspectors. Yep. Um, if we had a generation of people who would become election workers who were younger, yeah, I think they would be great spokespersons for the fact that you cannot steal an election in America. Yeah, it's just not physically possible. And if you have forty million Americans who actually think it happened, there needs to be an army of new people who know from practical experience that when you put a group of strangers in a room and make them swear an oath to count the votes, they do it. 
Yeah, and, and there's, there's checks and balances too. And there's balances, and I mean, as the, I'm the clerk, I'm the warden. I've got the clerk. We've got a constable. Right. You know, again, nobody knows anybody before election day. We're all strangers. Right. The whole supposition of a stolen election is that at thousands of polling sites, groups of strangers who've never met will execute a very meticulous conspiracy and leave no paper trail. Right. It's preposterous. Right. But it comes back to, I want to just spout that, you know, and I'll out myself as a 69-year-old who grew up with radio and black and white TV, you know, that that really humans were not made to be digital natives and that this is a new environment and that there's so much research in neuroscience that's being that we are the beta testers or it's being tested on us and um there's no checks and balances on this technology and therefore i say like be in the real world with real friends not strangers who are followers but like spend time offline off your freaking phone with real people having real dinners and playing table tennis or playing music together, playing soccer with your kids, etc. because that is the human experience that it grounds us in our bodies instead of being addicted, dopamine addicted, where people are spending 8, 10, 12 hours online and they don't realize their minds are getting hacked by this. I, I agree and I feel a little guilty sometimes we were funded, I was a professor at Drake University, we were funded by the National Science Foundation under the rubric called Digital Citizenship, hmm. which was a service learning effort. So we would bring seniors into a lab that the NSF funded with computers, teach them how to set up emails, how to check on their social, teach them the basic skills of how to use a computer, mm -hmm. how to connect to the internet. It was, it was 2000, 2001, 2002. And um, we ended up not achieving a huge number of goals. But in terms of when I think back to the wider effort beyond our group right. nationally to, to bridge the digital, right. to bridge the digital, this was a national priority, to bridge the digital divide, to get people who are offline. Off. There are still parts of America where there's no access to It's still a national priority to get everybody access to the internet mm -hmm. the problem was i think in retrospect once we cut some of those 65 plus loose on the internet they weren't fully prepared for the fire hose right of information or to you know to render judgments in a in a way that uh, perhaps would allow them to be digital citizens instead of what they became which is digital soldiers. Yep. And and I'll just General Flynn's army. Yep. And and he he literally swore an oath to QAnon and and using Elizabeth Clare Prophet, the cult leader's uh terminology even with the ascended masters and stuff. But I do want to do a plug for AARP Fraud Watch, uh, hmm. which is the American Association for Retired People for us over 60. Uh, folks that really warn people like the fact that they can get three seconds of your voice and AI 
call a grandparent and say, oh, it's your grandson. I'm in an accident. I need your credit card information. That They won't let me in the emergency room. And elderly people, I know this is my grandson's voice, and they give it over, and it's a scam. It's going to be uh, ramifying out through uh, commercial, financial, legal, political, institutional effects. I, I, I remember being very proud that we were part of bringing America online. I, I, I think these days I feel guilty was part of bringing in America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that, maybe this was not what we needed, and this isn't really helping. I, I still read a paper newspaper, in part because when you read the New York Times, is what I read in the paper version, you always encounter things that you weren't looking for and didn't expect, mm-hmm. and that you wouldn't go searching for. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the values of a of journalism. Yeah, and the internet. Some of that is true. You find things that you weren't looking for, but they have more of a radical yep. nature. Yeah, I still get paper. Um, I get the Times and the Globe in paper. The rest I, di- I am digitally subscribed to. But I want to comment that the New York Times just sued OpenAI for stealing their their intellectual property, which is a whole nother not thought through can of worms. Oh. The whole thing is uh, remarkable. If any scholar tried to do what OpenAI did, they'd be they'd be run out of town. It is plagiarism at a scale never before uh, seen in the history of mankind. And this, I mean, intellectual property has costs and benefits, like all forms of property. But I do believe that you can't just go and take people's stuff, right? At a scale never before humanly possible. And then throw it into a large language model and say that you're somehow serving humanity. Right. That none of that makes any sense. Yep. I I, I agree. The genie's out of the bottle, though, because it's open, uh, and uh, there's so many new AI companies being developed, and um, and the next generation, the next generation, and then quantum computing is coming down the pike. Too. So I don't want to bum everybody out uh, uh, from listening to this thing, but we, we want to, as scholars, we want to say, listen, this is what's happening, and don't lose control of your own mind and body, and, be, and watch out for your family, friends, your neighborhood, and influence who you can in an ethical way. And if we think just how to stay focused on what's possible and what isn't. If we expect an administrative agency to, you know, FDA, the EPA, whatever, DOJ, whatever agency you can think of that has the domain where the AI or some other technology may be a threat, they can only regulate it if they have the mandate from Congress. Right. And if we look to Congress to pass a law that's going to authorize an administrative agency in 2024, to regulate AI, I think it's very unlikely. I don't think people in Congress are fluent enough or legislatively oriented enough to pass any new laws, which means we're going to have to go with the laws on the books. The laws on the books don't provide much in the way of guidance. 
to the administrative agencies mm. that would potentially regulate the worst excess of capitalism, which is their fundamental going back to Justice Brandeis, that is the fundamental role of the regulatory administrative state is to sort of keep us from the worst extremes right. of a market that gets carried away, right. whether it's workplace conditions, environmental or air quality, water quality, digital life quality, democracy quality. It all derives from Congress giving that mandate. Well, we're a long way from the world where the Clean Air Act was passed, the right. Clean Water Act. Yeah. That's true, but I I have to believe it's that you know because I'm an optimist at heart and I don't want to give up. We, we there needs to be a supermajority and laws need to be passed to put back into place the regulations to mitigate the the checks you know to in, instrument um, implement the checks and balances we need uh, because there are some people who are psychopathical. Psycho, psychopathic, logical, um, who want chaos and they want to burn up in a reality, and that's not okay. I'm not a betting man, and I, I don't gamble. But if I had to push my bet on whether the administrative straight would be stronger or weaker in two years, my guess is it's going to be weaker, no matter what. Even if we get the best possible election results. The administrative state is being torn to pieces mm. by court rulings, by really well-organized interest groups, by people who don't want to be regulated at all. And so uh, I, my prediction, unfortunately, is we're going to see fewer and fewer regulations, fewer and fewer administrative agencies. I, I think in, in the next 10 years, we will see things that we thought would be there forever will be gone. Well, I'm going to push back on you, and you can call me naive and an idealist, but I just I refuse to to accept that as a, a legitimate reality. So, educating people—that's what I'm going to keep doing, uh, especially young people who have a lot of brilliance and a lot of energy and talent. I want it—I want them to feel hope for a future. And to and to you know rise up not violently but with their power and energy and creativity, and and not amplify bad actors unintentionally because of their ignorance, and because I see that all the time. I'd love to see an education seminar. Maybe I'll do one myself on for the media to stop uh, uh, helping empower disinformation artists and bad actors. Um, and, I, you know, I did my doctoral dissertation to update the law and criminalize brainwashing and mind control as trafficking is criminal and is acknowledged. So I use trafficking law as a foundation. And uh, so anyway... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can, Stephen, to support you and everybody else who believes in the administrative state. I certainly do. My law professor mother, uh, who, who taught administrative law, certainly does. Mm -hmm. My social worker father, my my scholar, somewhere all advocates of the administrative state. It's just the reason I share it is not to be a doom a doomsayer, but it's to to help people who might be not as familiar with those institutions right. understand that you're not going to know how important they were until they're gone. Right. 
and when they're gone and there is no centers for disease control anymore because of the anti-vax movement and the, the amplification um, by Elon Musk and others of things that make no sense and have no scientific basis, then um, we're going to live in a very different world. There's be a lot more people with measles. Yep, yep. So you mentioned Elon Musk, who uh, bought Twitter. It's now X. You were doing a lot of your data analysis with your company on Twitter. Now it's X. Um, I've been hearing, but I'd like to get from a scholar who actually looks at the data. Is it, has it not become a cesspool of bad actors or like I what? I have a couple, a couple of things to say about it. Uh, one is it always was, even when trust and safety was at its height. I see. Trust and safety was not empowered mm -hmm. to the point or, I think, capable mm -hmm. of managing some of the worst successes. Mm -hmm. So even before Elon was there, there were problems where people had figured out how to use Twitter for nefarious purposes, and there were just too many of them mm -hmm. to catch, and there were too many boundary cases. So there was plenty of bad behavior before Elon. Mm -hmm. It's hard to, harder to describe what the full universe of Twitter is now, because scholars have a lot less access to data mm. and the open free access is gone the paid access is either highly restricted to a very small number of scholars or priced at a point where really priced at a point where nobody would buy it yeah i heard really um i think it was either tristan harris or Aza raskin saying it was forty thousand a month to get forty two thousand a month is the entry price there might be a few packages that sort of dribble out and there are other ways there are third-party vendors mm -hmm. um and so i think what i've noticed is things that would have been suspended under the former trust and safety regime many accounts were many accounts actually still are mm -hmm. getting suspended not as many mm -hmm. and maybe for different reasons um there are things on there that you would think would be very easy to find if you ran a big software company and $40 billion in your pocket. And you wanted to find them and you didn't want them on your platform. So I think it's being treated a little more as a Wild West mm -hmm. right now with a facade of trust and safety and yeah. a sort of a new way of defining what a bad actor is. On mm -hmm. I mean, some of Elon's own actions have been, you know, borderline incitement mm -hmm. to all sorts of bad actors and uh, nonviolent and potentially even violent ones. And so I don't know what the regime is. I do know that I see things in the data as recently as this week that are shocking. Mm. And, uh, you know, I guess you're allowed to say, that you're a militant Christian white nationalist on Twitter, put that in your bio and share a bunch of stuff about, you know, that are basically threats on the presidents of the United States life. You know, these, these are permitted. Yeah, they let Alex Jones back on, the guy who uh, owes a billion dollars or something for the Sandy Hook, you know, horror show. He said, I, I must have had a psychosis 
when I was doing this. That's what he said under deposition, but we know he's a bad actor who's selling supplements sure. and guns for, for violent insurrection. And and there's a whole range of cross-cutting actors who've got new life. I mean, some of these bios I've been looking at are of the original founding QAnons who talk about being brought back in. Mm. Like they were suspended, suspended for a period of time, but now they've been allowed. And we see some of that in the press, but people are giving their first-person account and they're defining their identity as by the number of times they were suspended or hmm. their gratitude to Elon Musk. There is a kind of a cult of Elon mm -hmm. on Twitter. I mean, he has very passionate supporters and advocates who seem to be, you know, authentically into Bitcoin and Elon. That's, you know, that's their whole nexus. And they hate vaccines and they don't trust the government and they might not trust. Uh, small d democracy yeah you mentioned crypto so i have to say i've always thought of it as a scam a pyramid scheme type scam multi-level marketing scam because it never made sense to me if you want to have a country where you pay for taxes and have police and fire and roads you need to be able to uh to be above board and not be uh, uh you know hiding there's a thread in these, and again, there are so many sub sort of break off groups, yep. but there is a thread that, you know, believes the American dollar needs to be, the role of the American dollar needs to be. Yeah, they want the limited. Chinese uh, to be the unit or or Russia or, or crypto. Or, yeah. Or crypto. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's out there. I believe it's a little pie in the sky. Um, mm. But if you would have said, People were planning J6 and they're going to do this thing. People say that sounds crazy. Nobody. I mean, I still think back to the week. It was a week after the election was called for Biden. Yeah. And a lot of the discussion was just give him a week. He just needs to get over. Like he's some kind of kid who's in tantrum. Just give him a week. Mitch McConnell said, give him a week and he'll, he'll accept it. He never had any intention. Right. And I think they knew it. Yeah. I think they knew it. Yeah. Um, and where it's a story that hasn't been fully told. Yes. I will say the without Twitter, you couldn't have had January 6th. You couldn't have done it because uh maybe you know, say private messaging or you know, other platforms where people do radical things. It was the publicness. Yeah. That got the numbers out. It was the publicness that put the face of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers you know, all over the identity of the movement. Right. And so today I was looking at a bunch of people who are prominent on Twitter, prominent in the news media. They're still floating like this Antifa. These were all Antifa. It would have been a peaceful rally if all these Antifa hadn't infiltrated the MAGA movement and been the ones that led the charge in. I'm like, you got to be kidding. Yeah, that was the Moonies. The, uh, Sean Moon was uh, there at the Capitol saying it was Antifa. The Washington Times was writing it was Antifa. So again... You're saying it to this, to this day. Yeah. yeah. Denial. Yeah, lying. <laughs> Disinformation. Dr. Stuart Shulman, thank you for being a good citizen, uh, an academic scholar who... Has uh, done a lot of really important research, and I'm sure will continue to do so. And uh, 
let's let, let's you know reach out to others and say let's work together uh, till the uh, presidential election. For me, I want to see a supermajority so we can we can uh, legislate uh, uh, necessary protections uh, to guard our our uh, experiment in democracy. I'm going to continue to offer my services to upgrade the mechanics and the uh, the theory and the practice of information retrieval, machine learning. I just hope the Democratic Party is listening. Yeah. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Take take care. That's it for today's episode of the Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump in that order. These books are a culmination of 45 plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at IGOTOUT.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.